Hello, and thank you for joining me for today's episode of Big Ideas in Eating Disorders. In this series, we hear from people in the field of eating disorders who share with us their personal and professional journeys, their experiences, their big ideas that never quite get represented in this way in standard academic publications and conferences. I'm Kathy Pike, clinical psychologist and professor of psychology at Columbia University, and I'm the host of Big Ideas in Eating Disorders. And today I'm pleased to be talking with Dr. Alan Kaplan. Dr. Kaplan is currently a senior clinician scientist at the Center for Addiction and Mental Health in Toronto, a professor in Department of Psychiatry at University of Toronto, and a member of the Institute of Medical Science. Dr. Kaplan previously served as Vice Dean for Graduate and Academic Affairs in the Faculty of Medicine, and he was the inaugural Lorette Ann Rogers Chair in Eating Disorders at Toronto General Hospital. We are delighted to have Dr. Kaplan with us today. Welcome, Alan. Thank you, Kathy, and I'm delighted to be here. It's, it's a, a privilege to participate in this, uh, in this project, uh, and I'm very excited that I'm part of it. So thank you. Thank you. So let's start, Alan, at the beginning, uh, your growing up years. And when was it that you decided that you were going to go into medicine and then into psychiatry? And that goes back a ways. <laughs> uh, medicine, I, I, it was always a part of my ambition. Uh, I, I had a pretty close relationship with my pediatrician growing up. I do remember that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it was encouraged in me by my parents. I'm a son of a rabbi. But, you know, it was emphasized to me that if whatever you do, you need to be able to be in control of your profession and to make sure that you feel that you're making a contribution, that you're not dependent as our clergy and many other professions dependent on others who determine, uh, you know, uh, how things go mm-hmm. and whether you have a job or not. So uh, I do recall back then that I had this relationship with the pediatrician. I got very interested in medicine. It sort of fit this idea that, uh, nobody can take away what you learn. That knowledge mm-hmm. is you know, the, your knowledge is yours, and yours forever. Uh, and psychiatry is a, a bit of a detour off of that. So I, I was not somebody who went into medicine to do psychiatry. Uh, this is a story of the power of mentoring. Uh-huh. Uh, I was very interested in internal medicine and fact my uh, initial year of training, clinical training in, in internal medicine. And I wanted, to, I was fascinated by the interaction of hormones and behavior. So I guess there, even there, there's a component of behavioral health. Uh, and so I entered the internal medicine program thinking I'd become an endocrinologist. That was what I had thought. And again, I had a good experience with a teacher who was an endocrinologist. Mm-hmm. In my first week of training, literally, I was on a general medical unit, uh, a gastroenterology unit, and the head of that unit was uh, a famous professor who who, uh, developed hyperalimentation. So uh, this is feeding people uh, through intravenous line, 
mostly mm. mostly for people with uh, chronic inflammatory bowel disease, Crohn's disease, or ulcerative colitis. And so many of the patients on this floor were being fed hyperalimented through an intravenous line. There was one young woman who was on this floor. And I remember because the chief resident took a stack of charts, this is how it works in the hierarchical uh, you know, world of medicine. And he said, these are your patients and you got to know everything about them. If I ever ask you a question about them, you better know. Uh, uh -huh. And uh, you have to take care of them. You know, and this is the first step in the clinical training of a physician. Mm -hmm. where you get assigned patients and every morning at 6 or 7 a.m. you round and you discuss each patient. So this young woman was 18. I remember her like it was yesterday. Mm -hmm. That's the impact it had on me. And nobody really knew what was wrong with her, mm -hmm. other than the fact that she was emaciated. She weighed 78 pounds at 18. Uh, and there were all kinds of theories about why she was not eating. And, you know, her response was, I just don't want to eat. I don't like the food. Mm -hmm. One night on call, I happened to pass her room. It was the middle of the night. And I heard her throwing up, heard her vomiting. And knocked on the door and asked if she was okay. And she started crying. Mm -hmm. I had no clue or no idea how to handle this. Little did I know that this was my first experience of psychotherapy. Because mm -hmm. uh, I sat down with her. Uh, she was in the bed. I was on a chair. And I, I spent about two hours with her. And she revealed to me that she was making herself vomit. She hadn't told anybody that. Mm -hmm. uh, and that she was afraid of gaining weight. Mm -hmm. So, Alan, you, in, in coming across this individual who's vomiting in her room, you're startled. Nobody on the unit knows what to make of her. If that were happening today, we would all pretty much immediately recognize the eating yes. disorder. So tell us, what was the landscape like? Were people not talking about eating disorders? Were eating disorders on anybody's radar at that time? Certainly not for physician training, not in medical school. That Maybe there was five minutes on eating disorders mm -hmm. and maybe two minutes on anorexia nervosa. It was mentioned mm -hmm. in passing. It was in some of the notes that we had to read. Uh, and so this was a whole new thing. And, mm -hmm. you know, I, I had a memory of this condition where people starve themselves. I didn't know much about it. So in those days, interesting how times have changed, there used to be a library in the hospital. Uh -huh. That doesn't exist anymore. Right. Uh, everything's online and it's very expensive to ha have hard copies. But there was a library and I went up at 5 a.m. after I had spoken to her and uh, I saw on the shelf of new books was a blue book called Anorexia Nervosa, A Multidimensional Perspective by Paul Garfinkel. Uh -huh. So I opened it up and lo and behold, he worked at what where I'm sitting now, which is the old Clark Institute of Psychiatry and was the world expert in anorexia. And I called him up and I said, look, I've got this patient. I introduced myself. I don't know what to do with her. Neither does anybody else. Could I meet with you and just discuss this and maybe you can give me some ideas. He was extremely welcoming. And about a week later, I went to his office and he started talking to me and said, well, what do you want to do? Mm -hmm. It was a, a, sort of an odd question. I didn't come there to discuss my career. 
I came there to discuss this patient. And I said, well, you know, I think I want to be an endocrinologist. He said, oh, really? He takes from his desk, opens the drawer, a, a paper he had just written on the neuroendocrinology of anorexia nervosa. And uh -huh. he gives it to me. And that began a, a relationship that continues to today. So he, he, took, he took me under his wings. He started mentoring me. He said, why don't you switch? psychiatry and, and work with me, maybe one of the few people that actually switched to psychiatry to go into eating disorders. Uh -huh. I became his resident. I became his research fellow. Uh, we then moved together to from the Clark Institute to the Toronto General Hospital, where, where we established, he established the eating disorder program, there, which, which was quite well known. Uh -huh. uh, and, you know, the rest is history. So, so there's this element of serendipity in the the course but it appealed to you right like there's something about this individual who you spoke to the puzzle and mystery of her clinical presentation the excitement of the work that uh dr garfinkel was doing in neuroendocrinology what do you what do you remember from that time of what questions you had or why you really wanted to lean into this yeah, so uh, another part of the story, which is really, which really was striking to me, is every month, because I moved from another, you know, when you're an intern, you do rotation, two months of this, two months of that. Mm -hmm. I was well past and not participating in this GI unit that she was in. And her doctor was the chief of medicine at the hospital. And every month I get a call from the secretary, Dr. Hollenberg would like you to come down and see we'll call her Judy. Uh -huh. uh, she's asked to see you. Uh huh. So that struck me that that two hours I spent with her, not that I knew what, what I was doing, but had such an impact on her that uh -huh. we started meeting every month. Again, basically some form of supportive psychotherapy. Like uh -huh. I said, I had no idea what I was doing. I was just trying to be kind and empathic and listen. Mm -hmm. I guess not very many physicians had done with her. Mm -hmm. uh, and so that was attractive to me. The fact that it had such impact. Uh, and I said to myself, you know, if I really knew what I was doing, it, the impact could be extraordinary. Right. Right. You know, because I'm just sitting there as a human being listening to this young woman. And she reveals without much coaxing on my part, her history, which included abuse, mm -hmm. sexual abuse and trauma. And of course, you know, I, I didn't know how to put all this together. And I said, you know, th this, this is really something I need to learn about. Mm -hmm. And that was, that was a big part of the attraction. And I realized I wasn't going to be able to understand this unless I had a, a, a well-founded background in psychiatry and mental illness, mm -hmm. clearly a mental illness. Mm -hmm. A lot of that played a role in my switching. And right. And so when you started, you you said you approached your time with her without great knowledge about, of course, about evidence-based treatments, because we weren't talking in that way at that time, um, but with empathy and attention and kindness and and trying to listen and hear her story, uh, what were the frameworks that not, were developing? And not, be, not, be not being judgmental. That's important. Yeah. And so, so you've got a 
uh, as you say, a, a sort of a solid frame of supportive therapy. What were the emerging ideas around treatment for these individuals? What what's came up first and in, in your experience as you pursued training? Yeah, so my first exposure was on an inpatient unit run by Dr. Garfinkel. I was that's where I did my second year of residency uh-huh. uh, for really very, very ill people. Uh, and it was quite uh, it was quite oppressive when I think about how we treated people, you know, it was the only locked ward in the psychiatric facility, which I scratched my head and said, it makes no sense. I mean, there's psychotic patients, manic patients. Why is the only locked ward the eating disorder ward? Yeah. And, you know, the the door locked from the outside, not the Mm -hmm. inside, which Mm -hmm. always, always struck me that, you know, that this was a very, it seemed to me sort of inhumane as mm-hmm. the only way to get people to eat was basically they had to eat their way out of hospital. Mm-hmm. And it was, you know, a conditioning model, which we all followed at the time in trying to get people to eat. Uh, basically they, the only way they could get out was to follow the rules and get weight, gain some weight, but it never struck me as having a basis in understanding really what's underneath all this. Mm-hmm. You know, we know so much more now about the neurobiology of it, the genetics of it. Unfortunately, as you know, treatment has not progressed. And we're probably not that much further ahead with certainly the psychological treatments, somewhat better, especially for younger people with family based therapy uh, and with uh, even psychopharmacology. Mm-hmm. There's, no, there's no drug approved for anorexia nervosa. It's the only psychiatric illness that has no FDA approved drug. I mean, think about that. Right. The other two uh, established forms of eating disorders, binge eating disorder, bulimia nervosa, do have approved drugs. Mm-hmm. But I never found a drug, and I've been involved. Uh, as We've you know, collaborated on a number of yeah. studies trying to pursue that. Trying to see if anything would help, and nothing really did. Mm-hmm. And that's true to today. I guess the, the promise today is psychedelics. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, I'm somewhat involved in that. I've got FDA approved to run a clinical trial. And why it appealed to me is because the way psychedelics are proposed to work is to increase brain plasticity. Mm-hmm. And if the one thing that you know when you talk to somebody with anorexia is how cognitively rigid they are. Mm-hmm. stuck in their behavioral patterns. And it, I often said to myself, you know, what would be great is we could just blow up their brain and start over, <laughs> metaphorically. Right. And essentially, right. that's what psychedelics do, psilocybin as an example. Uh, we stop forming neural connections when we're about 25, and it's very difficult to form new connections, which is why... It's so hard to learn a new motor task as you get older. I'm trying to learn how to play golf. Mm -hmm. If I started at age 10, I would have picked it up within two days. Uh, You know, I'm a year into my lessons and I'm still pretty bad. (laughs) And you can can actually feel that you're stretching your brain, right? Mm -hmm. That you're trying to get your brain to do something that it really uh, objects to. And, you know, that's true for so many different skiing is another example. Little kids learn how to ski within a week. Mm-hmm. And 
uh, I don't know if you've ever tried, but it, it's damn tough to learn how to ski when you're old. Yeah. And so that has to do with brain plasticity. We don't have much brain plasticity. And the feeling is, I, I think there's some hope that under the influence of a psychedelic with psychedelic assisted therapy, that we could break some of these patterns that are so damaging to our patients and mm -hmm. that basically hijack their lives. And so, Alan, your focus on, you started out with the neuroendocrinology, it's a real biological uh, mechanism. You're talking about uh, psychedelics and the brain and how brain pathways get set, how to disrupt the brain pathways. I'm hearing from you that as you look at the eating disorders, that there's a biology, there's a brain biology, there's a brain pathology that's foundational to these eating disorders. And when you were first learning about eating disorders, my guess is that there were two camps of understanding biology, but there was a big camp that was uh, and and publicly held of a view of Social wealthy folks. adolescent girls who um, were, you know, voluntarily pursuing yeah. this. Can you develop that for me and tell me what what were you seeing in these tensions and what do you think about how much choice do people have in these disorders and where does choice come to play? Yeah, so this gets into the continuum of eating, uh, you know, lots of people eat in somewhat aberrant ways. That doesn't mean that they have an eating disorder. It doesn't mean they have a psychiatric illness. That's very different than what we're talking about. Mm -hmm. and at some point, uh, you know, excessive dieting falls off the continuum and it, it then becomes a serious psychiatric problem. Uh, and so, yeah, I mean, the, the second camp you referred to was the sociocultural one, which basically said these are spoiled young women who are pursuing vanity. And, you know, that's what this is about. And if they really wanted to, they could pick up the fork, put food on it and eat. Uh, that's not true. Mm -hmm. The people that are really ill with anorexia nervosa, they do not have volitional control over their behavior when it comes to food. And all you have to do is spend some time with somebody who is chronically ill with anorexia. And it becomes obvious early on that this is a much more complicated illness. This isn't mm -hmm. just about trying to pursue thinness or vanity or beauty. In fact, in my opinion, it has very little to do with that. Mm -hmm. uh, there, you know, there's a group that are, are start off that way, but they don't end up as patients in an eating disorder unit. Uh, they realize that you know, trying to starve yourself is a nasty thing to do to your brain. It's unpleasant. It doesn't make them feel better. They feel worse. And so they eventually stop. The healthy kids end up saying, well, this makes no sense. And they start eating again. Mm -hmm. or they pursue other behaviors uh, to deal with whatever's driving their drive, you know, their wish to be thinner. So the drive for thinness and dieting behavior, uh, if we look at global studies, national studies, we see there's a, it's very widespread. Yes, the pressures around thinness, the sociocultural ideals, 
the idea that thinness is going to make you happy. Um, all of these things are in the environments that many young people grow up in, particularly young girls. They may be part of the story in terms of how people start to get into some behavioral risk patterns like dieting. But what you're saying is some people, depending on their brains, is that, are you saying it's really, or or some other aspect is going to put some people at risk to move into a chronic pattern of eating disorder and others are going to move out and say, you know what, this this isn't. I I think what that variable is, has to do with genetics. So this is one area of research that has really grown uh, starting in the 1990s. uh, And I was part of a large group, global group that looked at genetic influence, did a number of studies, whole genome-wide association studies. We could identify a number of genes that seem to confer risk for anorexia nervosa. And so I think the way we conceptualize it now is the person goes on to develop an eating disorder, a serious eating disorder, uh, uh, is carrying that risk. That's true for any illness. We all have, we all, I mean, the phrase that has often been used to describe this, not my phrase, it's genes load the gun and the environment pulls the trigger. We're all walking around with loaded guns. We all have a genetic risk for illnesses, whether it's heart disease, whether it's cardiovascular disease, gastrointestinal disease, dementia, what determines whether somebody falls ill or not? So it's the interaction between their genetic predisposition and the environment. If the environment's forgiving, they'll be okay. If the environment is not forgiving, so what's an example of a non-forgiving environment? If you have a family history of alcoholism, do not encourage your child to work as a bartender. Mm-hmm. That's a non-forgiving environment for somebody who's genetically at risk where Uh, for alcoholism because they have easy access to alcohol all the time. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so that would not be a wise thing to do. So in the case of eating disorders, then it's really a setup because basically in the Western world, uh, certainly in North America, Europe, uh, really, as we look around the world in the vast majority of cultures have adopted a thin ideal and pressures around thinness. And so it's everywhere that you should be thin and that that will somehow confer all kinds of benefits. And so the risk, the environmental risks are pervasive, right? Yes, but as a parent, you can mitigate those risks Mm -hmm. uh, by doing certain things. So my daughter at age five, said she wanted to dance, take a dance class. It's worth a bit of a digression. So I took her to uh, the National Ballet School of Canada, has classes for young people. I was pretty pretty horrified. They were all little girls. The mir- there were mirrors all around the room. The teacher was downright mean. And they were not happy, these little mm-hmm. girls. I then took her to a modern jazz class at the local Y. Completely different experience. Little guys, little girls, teacher with terrific cracking jokes, they were happy, which is the forgiving environment. Mm-hmm. It's pretty obvious that right. as a parent, you try to know your child and reduce the risk that the environment confers as best you can, because we can't change our genetics. 
Mm-hmm. Now, those would, there are those who would say in the field of epigenetics that the environment actually causes a shift in how your genes are uh, displayed and how your dream, genes contribute. So it gets more complicated. Mm-hmm. Uh, but but that's the, I think that's the sophisticated way to try to understand this. Yeah. Uh, in, you know, 2023, uh, despite all that, it hasn't necessarily in, improved our treatment. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I think we're better at keeping people alive. I'm not sure the quality of their life has improved as a result of that. I also wonder, Alan, based on what you're saying, we have this at a scientific base. I think most everyone would agree that there's uh, some interaction between genetics, biology broadly, and environment. But in terms of the public view of eating disorders, what do you see in terms of how people are tre- how the public views eating disorders? And I think that is really a big idea and big issue that you have about how we think about what's happening today and what we need to be thinking about to improve treatment for individuals with eating disorders. Yeah, I mean, anorexia is unique in the fact that there is such a discrepancy between uh, the illness itself and the devastating effect it has on people and people's, the public understanding of the illness. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, this isn't about, as we just talked about, just young people pursuing an aesthetic goal. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, 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 it isn't that. And, you know, the stigma that gets attached to eating disorders relates to the fact that people, healthcare professionals, think that the person who has a anorexia can control it and is just stubborn about not controlling it in the pursuit of vanity. Uh, and that's not accurate. You know, and it, it bears no resemblance to what a person who has anorexia is struggling with. These are devastating illnesses with a, the highest mortality in psychiatry. Uh, people die from them. Uh, and, you know, the, the general public does not understand that. So I think we have a huge responsibility to educate the public better than we have. We've done a poor job of educating, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. Uh, the public and those that interact with young people, whether that's mm-hmm. teachers, counselors, uh, so that people have a better understanding uh, of the of these illnesses, eating disorders in general, anorexia specifically. Uh, and in that way, I think we, we can hopefully try to improve uh, treatment because the earlier somebody gets treatment, the better their outcome is. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's an important prognostic fact that we know. Mm-hmm. It occurs to me as you're describing the the bias, the stigma associated with eating disorders and particularly anorexia nervosa from the public lens, it reminds me of that you just mentioned alcoholism, that for individuals who have addiction disorders, uh, substance use disorders, similarly, the even though in the abstract people say, oh yeah, there must be a biological risk and um, that interacts with behavior that by the the way the public treats individuals, it is a behavioral and moral failing that they haven't recovered or that they continue to be sick. And it's self, right, that it's a 
volitional thing that if they just tried harder, they would be well. Yeah. And the where there's analogous understanding is that the reason people start drinking with the alcohol is not the same reason that keeps them drinking. Right. right? The, the chemical itself, alcohol, induces changes that then lead to cravings that take over the individual's behavior and and increases their drinking, Mm -hmm. Uh, which is why, you know, in terms of steps to abstinence, people have to stop drinking first. And it's not that dissimilar from anorexia nervosa, where if you starve a brain, the brain's going to react and react in a way that is going to make it harder for that individual to start eating again. Because mm-hmm. all of their their autonomic nervous system kind of slows down. They don't digest food. The food just sits in individual stomach. They feel bloated and full and fat, and then diet even more, mm-hmm. starve themselves even more. So what what starts the illness, whether it's alcohol or anorexia or many other illnesses, is not what perpetuates it. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's an important concept to understand in the treatment of people with eating disorders or many other conditions. Mm-hmm. So, Alan, if we take on this public bias, this public stigma, and imagine how we can most effectively better educate the public around eating disorders, anorexia nervosa specifically, and as you say, maybe other psychiatric or mental health conditions more broadly, but zeroing in on anorexia nervosa in particular, do you have ideas for what we should be doing to help change this public perception? Well, I think certainly education early on, you know, you don't prevent eating disorders by going into a high school class and telling people not to throw up. What actually happens to the frequency of vomiting in such a situation is that the rates of vomiting go up, not down. And so you have to start much earlier and you have to focus on some of the underlying causes of why people try to starve themselves. So mutual respect, anti-bullying, healthy eating, nutrition. These are areas that we don't do a very good job of in childhood, educating both parents and children about. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. they they lay the foundation for later problems. Mm -hmm. One of them could be an eating disorder or anorexia. So So education is critical. Uh, We haven't disseminated what we do know. I mean, we have tons of information about what we think is behind somebody developing a disorder and what not to do. We have less of an idea about what to do. Uh, And we don't let that, we don't disseminate that in the public. The public doesn't understand that and they're not aware of it. So Mm -hmm. Uh, for whatever reason, the field has done a poor job, in my opinion, of disseminating information and educating people. Mm-hmm. So general education and starting early. And it sounds like also, and I would tend to agree with you, focusing on some of the foundational building blocks of healthy development that increase the environmental risk, that create these toxic environments that could turn the genes on, right, for eating disorders. So in addition to the public education, what would be the the basic science priority that you think would help 
further our understanding of why exactly individuals with anorexia nervosa get stuck in this pattern of behavior that you describe as not volitional? Yeah, I think we, you know, I think most of what we've tried uh, to do to help people has not worked. And so the models that we've been using, most of them involve borrowing treatments from other psychiatric disorders, whether that's depression, whether it's anxiety, OCD, and those treatments just have not worked in people with eating disorders. There's something unique about somebody with anorexia, and I believe there's something unique about the brain of people with anorexia, as an example. Uh, they don't respond to drugs in the same way. You need much, much higher doses. And this is even now panning out in the few uh, trials of uh, psychedelics. They seem to need a higher dose of psychedelics than do uh, people without an eating disorder and have, who have other psychiatric conditions. Again, is that a function of being emaciated and related to some aspects of what the biology of our systems are like in an emaciated state? Well, I think that's part of it. But as you know, we did a study where we refed people with anorexia and got them up to a normal weight and then put them on, in, in that mm -hmm. case, an SSRI. Didn't seem to make any difference. Mm -hmm. Right now, maybe, maybe the brain needed more time to adjust. That's the criticism of that study to conclude that, uh, you know, there's no role to play for an SSRI, I think, I think is not correct. Uh, but nevertheless, it's certainly not just the acute effects of starvation, because mm -hmm. when you feed people, they don't respond any better it seems to our standard psychiatric treatments mm -hmm. uh, than if they were underweight. Mm -hmm. So it remains in that sense, biologically a mystery. Mm -hmm. Again, I don't want to tout the whole area of psychedelics, but at least it, it provides a different model. Mm -hmm. and it's, a, it's a different approach to what we think may be behind the brain neurobiology of people with eating disorders or anorexia. Mm -hmm. uh, it's too so early. It sounds to tell. like yeah. I, I just want to emphasize it's just too early to tell if there's any merit, but we have to do the studies. We have to mm -hmm. do the science, and that's beginning to happen. Uh, so you're suggesting we need to do lean into public education early, uh, focusing on young people, young kids, uh, and the foundational aspects of environment that we know create and, a toxic and, and their parents. And the their parents, right. The caregivers have a lot to do with, uh, you know, what the environment is like. Mm -hmm. So parents and kids, when the kids are very young, focusing on foundational aspects of environment that increase risk that we know are risk factors for environmental risk factors, coupled with some basic science research, looking at the brain and the one of the mechanisms that you're really interested in understanding, as I hear it, is the rigidity of the brain. And can these psychedelics offer a different way of disrupting that rigidity than the medication strategies that we've tried in the past? Right. And those strategies are not based on a basic understanding of the biology, right? They're just 
based on the fact that these these strategies have worked in other psychiatric conditions. You know, so why would we think it might work in anorexia? They're not the same, mm-hmm. right? They have their own unique biology. And I think we, we've uh, come to see that uh, with research that's been going on for the last 10 years or so. Mm-hmm. And we need to tap into that uniqueness in order to be able to develop better treatments. Mm-hmm. So, Alan, you've been at this for a while, and you, as you described getting interested in the field, there was some real serendipity of happening upon this young woman who is an inpatient and encountering the leadership, the the leader that was Paul Garfinkel in the field and being able to be mentored by him. Those are when I think about that, and you said that it struck you as a young intern resident that this conversation that you had with this patient had such impact that she asked to see you monthly. It also had a huge impact on you. It's a story that you tell decades later, right? Yes. So as I think about it, I I, I wonder if you can share with us your thoughts on the role of this of connection with patients and mentors and what you might share from your own experience uh, for young professionals in the field. Yeah. And I think, I think it's timely that you asked that question as we've moved from in-person care to virtual care. Mm -hmm. It it is not the same. Mm -hmm. I steadfastly believe that. I mean, you can, you can, you can provide reasonable virtual care for uh, certain conditions, but there's the important element of human relatedness, which is what I was describing with that young woman that I first met when I was, you know, an intern, uh, is powerful. Mm -hmm. We don't understand that power for the most part, but I don't think you have that when you're seeing somebody through a a video camera. Mm -hmm. And this is a concern I have as we move more and more into virtual care, into AI, uh, you know, you're going to end up being treated by robots. Theoretically, that's possible. You know, what, what's that going to do to the human connectedness that I think is so important in psychiatry and in psychotherapy? Mm-hmm. Uh, it concerns me. Yeah. So the connection is really critical. What would you, and I agree with you, and and I think you're right, there's actually a real, I think there's a really interesting opportunity in terms of the research of what it means to be in physical presence with people versus being in virtual presence and studies of the biology of that experience. And I'm sure they're different and would be really interesting to to explore that further. As we think about mentorship and the passing of ideas from generation to generation, wonder if you could wrap up with us with some reflections on what you would hope for the next generation, what you might recommend and what you might share to the next generation of clinical researchers? Yeah, I mean, that's that's an important question, an interesting question. Let's go back to something I said a few minutes ago. We have to pursue the science. 
Mm-hmm. So there's no shortcut in trying to develop better treatment uh, without doing the science. So that means, you know, rigorously done randomized controlled trials, whether it's psychedelics or some other treatment, uh, those studies have to be done. Uh, uh, it's, it's not good enough to uh, depend on anecdotal evidence. Uh, and I, I think that's the first message. So it, it requires a whole new generation of people who are passionate about this and interested in doing it because it, it's very labor intensive. It's very time consuming trying to do a, a randomized trial in psychiatry. You need larger numbers of patients than you uh, generally have accessible to you. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there's no, there's no escaping the fact that we have to make this a science-based exercise. Mm-hmm. And again, that's more from the biologic aspect and from the psychological aspect, just to repeat what I said, the human relatedness piece, especially for this illness. Now, it may be the same for, I don't think it's exactly the same for depression or uh, other psychiatric disorders. I think it's a critical part of what is effective and even curative in dealing with people who have a serious eating disorder. Mm-hmm. Alan, it's really wonderful talking with you. And I'm struck by the importance of this big idea uh, that you bring forward of the gap between what the public thinks about individuals with eating disorders and what we know from the science and the need for us to both educate the public and improve the science. Uh, you've done both. You've contributed greatly to our field uh, on many fronts, and it's really been a pleasure talking with you today. Thank you. Well, thank you very much for including me in this.